That's chat is brought to you by Walters. Walters is the place to be this weekend. The dance this weekend welcome the Detroit Tigers and DC United on Saturday night at 7:30 hosts the LA Galaxy. Register at waltersdc.com/events and receive a free old-time logger for doing so. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Checks the runner and throws. And a swing and a high drive, deep right center field. Call going back, looking up at the wall, and there it goes. It's 6-0 Detroit. Three-run homer, Akil Badu. The 2-2 to Green. Swing and a high, high drive to right field. Thomas back on this one to the warning track near the wall. He looks up, and it's gone. A solo shot for Green makes it 8-0 Tigers, his fourth of the year. The 2-2. Swing and a fly ball, well hit to left center field. Badu going back to the track, to the wall, and it's gone! And it's 8-3. Home run number six for Thomas. Four rows into the Brewhouse red seats in left center. The 1-2. Swing and a high drive, deep right field. Veerling back to the track, to the wall, and there it goes! It's now 8-6. Ruiz dumps it down to the Nationals' bullpen, his fourth home run. And the Nationals are on the comeback trail. What was once 8-0 is now 8-6, a two-run game here in the seventh inning. Now the pitch. Swinging a ground ball past the mound toward the middle. Baez crosses to the right side, has it. He fires the throw in time to a stretching Torkelson. So the Tigers take game one of this three-game interleague series. And welcome to Nats Chat for Saturday, May 20th, 2023, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at Nationals Park. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. So to me, there are two very different ways of looking at what happened with the Nats on Friday night, what was an 8-6 loss to the Detroit Tigers at Nationals Park in game one of a three-game series. On the one hand, the Nats were down 8 nothing in the sixth inning. Jake Irvin got shellacked. And the Nats now have lost some games here. Four consecutive games, six of the team's last eight games. Nats are down to 18 and 27. On the other hand, the Nats erupted for three runs in the bottom of the sixth, three more runs in the bottom of the seventh, totaled two home runs and four doubles over those two innings. The Nats got some good bullpen work. The game became competitive. Mark, I don't know, maybe this is just me, but, you know, this game in either of the Nats' last two seasons, to me, would have been like, you know, a 13-1 loss with a Nationals position player pitching in the top of the ninth inning. Instead, the game did become competitive. So, 
I actually do see this game as kind of sort of another sign of progress, but maybe that's just me. I think it's okay to think like that. I agree. I think last year, this is a game that they never even come close to making competitive and the bullpen probably makes it worse and the lineup just kind of goes silent the rest of the way. This was the ultimate boys battling situation (laughs) where they score six runs to get it to within eight, six, and then have the tying run at the plate. And it's only the seventh inning with nobody out. They almost came all the way back in a very short amount of time there. Now it fizzled after that. And, you know, there are good things to take from the fact that they did battle and they didn't give up and they put together some good at bats, but they didn't have a hit until the sixth inning. <laughs> Let's remember that against the guy who came in with a six ERA in Matthew Boyd. And while they were better in the latter half of the game, as far as pitching and defense went in the first portion of the game, the pitching was not good and the defense was not good either. And that was shaping up to be their sloppiest game in a while. And so I kind of look at that maybe a little more than the way they came back to battle and, and make it interesting in the end. So let's get to what happened in the first portion of the game. Jake Irvin was an ad starting pitcher on Friday night. He, you know, overall had done a pretty good job since the Nats brought him up from AAA Rochester on May 3rd. Although his last outing, that 8-2 loss to the New York Mets at Nationals Park this past Sunday, six runs in four and two-thirds innings. Although, as we talked about after that game, he pitched better than that final line suggested. Well, Jake Irvin on Friday night got rocked. Six runs, four earned in two and two-thirds innings. Gave up five hits, two home runs, and three singles. He issued four walks and a wild pitch. He, over his mere two and two-thirds innings, threw 75 pitches. The 75 pitches were made up of 38 strikes and 37 balls. He had a near one-to-one strikes-to-balls ratio, and Irvin committed a fielding error in a Tigers three-run first. So about that three-run first, top of the first, Irvin allowed three runs on a leadoff homer by Zach McKinstry to left center field on a one-two pitch, a two-out opposite field RBI single by Akil Badu to left field. Badu, by the way, a local, born in Silver Spring, Maryland. Also in that inning, Irvin issuing two walks. You had the fielding error by Irvin. He botched the fielding of a tamper back to him by the Tigers' second batter of the game, Javier Baez, and you had a one-out pass ball by catcher K-Bert Ruiz. Now, Irvin did then toss a perfect top of the second. So you said to yourself, all right, bad first inning, clearly, but maybe Jake Irvin can sort of right himself as the evening goes on. Uh, No, top of the third, Jake Irvin gave up a two-out, three-run homer by Akil Badu to right center for a 6-0 Tigers lead. Also in the inning, Irvin giving up two singles and issuing two walks into wild pitch and a crucial defensive miscue by second baseman Luis Garcia, who finally has committed an error this season. He committed a one-out throwing error for his first error of this season, made an errant throw and attempting to turn what would have been an inning-ending 6-4-3 double play with no runs having scored in the inning. So you had the error by Garcia, the error by Irvin, the pass ball by Ruiz, but you also had Jake Irvin having major control problems and giving up two big home runs. So a lot to digest from a run prevention standpoint for the Nats over those first few innings. Yeah, they really didn't do anything well in those innings from a run prevention standpoint, as you say. Irvin was all over the place. His command, I mean, his curveball, he didn't seem to know where it was going to land. And that's his best pitch. And, you know, he spiked some. He was throwing them pretty far out there. Ruiz was charged with a pass ball on one, but I felt like it was a tough task. I know it hit his glove before it hit the dirt, but it felt like that was 
a wild pitch as well. Irvin also was sloppy on a comebacker play, couldn't field that cleanly. That prolonged the first inning. So he really was not sharp in this game. And he admitted afterwards, he said he needs to be better than that. I was a little surprised afterwards. And for those who watched Davey Martinez's press conference afterwards, Davey really focused on the defense. And then the double play ball, you know, that's cost him another three runs. So that's the difference in the ball game. You know, I preach it all the time about, you know, playing defense. We've got to play defense every day. I talk about it all the time. Hitting comes and goes. We got to catch the baseball. Can't make those errors, you know? And uh, it was costly today. And especially that error by Garcia. Now, it was a bad turn of what should have been a routine double play. And the throw was way offline. Garcia has been really good at second base all year. So you don't want to make too big a deal out of one error. But this was a costly one. It would have had Irvin out of the inning, the third inning. Pitch count still would have been manageable and the game would be 3 nothing, and maybe there's still some hope for something. So Davey was really harping on that. But how did Irvin respond to that? You learn something about a pitcher when you see how they respond to his teammates behind him not making a play. Well, he responded, walk homer, walk single, and he's out of the game. So I get it. He's a rookie, you know, not a top prospect. So you can understand why maybe he wasn't as good at overcoming the mistakes behind him. But I do feel like the air was bad, but you still have an opportunity as a pitcher to limit the damage and get out of the inning. And he wasn't able to do that. And he acknowledged afterwards that he did not make the pitches and he needs to be better. Yeah, Jake Irvin was not good. I feel like Davey harping on the Garcia error is something that managers will do. Like you'll pick a non-obvious thing and kind of harp on that, perhaps in part to protect a young pitcher in Jake Irvin so you don't just come out in a post-game presser and just rip him off him having just gotten ripped in the game. And the other thing is, as a manager, right, you focus on like every little detail. So a moment like that is going to stand out. You know, Davey has been on Luis in the past for, you know, his too casual defense. Although, like you said, like we've said, this season, Luis Garcia has been really good defensively at second. There's no doubt. Jake Irvin did not pitch well in this game on Friday night. I want to see more of Jake Irvin. I think a lot of people do. But, you know, I read what you wrote on MassInSports.com on Friday about Chad Cool. Chad Cool is on the mend. Again, I want to see Jake Irvin stay in the rotation. But, you know, we do now have back-to-back outings in which, at the very least, the final line was not good. And in this game on Friday night, Irvin was not good, period. Do you think Irvin remaining in the rotation is starting to get a little shaky? Or do you think for now he's okay? I think he didn't do a lot in this game to shut down that possibility. Unfortunately, he left the door ajar for maybe them to go back to Chad Cool. Now, they were going to meet in the coming days to decide the next step for Cool. He had thrown 65 pitches in four innings in a simulated game earlier in the week. They're trying to keep him on a five-day schedule right now. I asked Davey before the game, would you feel like Cool needed to go make a rehab start in the minors? Could he do another simulated game? I'm going to sit down you know, with Hickey, talk to Riz a little bit more about it, and then see where we're, where we're at. There's also the possibility that they could bring him back from the IL, but put him in the bullpen and be a long man and send somebody else down, maybe Hobie Harris, who has options. So there are some different ways they could approach this. I'm like you. I want to see more of Irvin, but I do think we have to acknowledge the bloom is off the rose a little bit. And that maybe, especially that start in San Francisco, might have been a little bit of a mirage and a a great outing for him, but maybe that's not really who he is. But you don't find that out until you see more of him and see how he handles it. I think the tricky part to this is that he's a guy they're going to watch his workload anyways this year. And it's a lot easier to do that at AAA 
than it is in the major leagues when you're trying to win games. So whether it happens before the next turn or whether it happens in another week or two or whenever it might be, I would not be surprised if he does get sent down again because I think they want to make sure they're not overworking him, that they have him through the season. He was not supposed to be in the big league rotation yet. I don't think he's somebody that they looked at and said, okay, he's going to throw 150 innings for us at the big league level. That's not the plan going into it. If he pitches well, you'd want to see more of him, but I think the idea would be for a little more manageable workload for him, which is easier to do at AAA than it is in the majors. So Chad Cool was placed on the 15-day injured list retroactively on April 30th. So he is eligible to come off that at any time here, you know, depending on how he's doing in the recovery from the right foot injury. But, you know, as we remember with Chad Cool, things were not going so well. Five starts, ERA of 941. Yeah, I mean, with Jake Irvin, we get it. He's not a high-level prospect, not supposed to be here, but he had that great outing at the San Francisco Giants, May 8th, six and a third scoreless innings with five strikeouts. And, you know, in his first outing, I thought he was pretty good, all things considered. And like we talked about in his last outing, final line bad, yes, but there was more to the outing than just that. But there's no question. I mean, Friday night was ugly against the Tigers and got to do better than that. And uh, Irvin, unfortunately, did not. Hey, are you a law firm partner stuck on an underperforming team while the rest of the competitors are spending big and winning big? Well, unlike Mackenzie Gore and Kate Ruiz, you have options. You don't have to stay on your 60-win team. Nat's chat sponsor, Mason Kalfis, and his team specialize in placing partners and associates at medium-sized and large law firms in Washington, D.C. and across the country. Mason Kalfis has recruiters in six states and has placed lawyers in more than half of the 100 largest law firms in the United States. While you may be reading doom and gloom from the legal press, many practices are red-hot antitrust, IP litigation, white-collar litigation, finance and direct lending, and healthcare, for example. Mason has worked with DOJ, SEC, and all kinds of government lawyers to get law firm partnerships at some of the most prestigious firms in the country. He also regularly works with partners at law firms looking to upgrade their platforms or brands to firms to better fit those partners' practices. Or sometimes, okay, let's be honest, often, Mason Kalfas works with partners looking for more money as a fair reward for the business that the partners are bringing in. Even in the quote-unquote slow first quarter of 2023, Mason Kalfas worked with three different lawyers who doubled the compensation their previous law firms were paying those lawyers. Because you are not under a CBA or team control for six years. In fact, staying at a firm too long is often a recipe for being underpaid. Explore your options today with Mason Kalfas. Call Mason today at 202-486-3535. That number again, 202-486-3535. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. 
Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The 2-2. Swing a line drive right center field, racing over his veerling. He lost it in the lights, and the ball goes to the warning track. Ruiz around first on his way to second, and he'll make it. Well, that should be a double. As veerling is pointing at his eyes, he lost it in the lights. That should be a two-base hit on a ball that he looked like he was going to catch, if not for the lights. We'll wait to make sure. I don't see how the official score has it. You know, unless he wants to check to see if he lost it. It's so obvious that he lost it in the lights, though. And it has been scored a double. Mark Jacobson, the official scorer tonight. Got it right. He knows what he's doing. The boys did battle in this game on Friday night, and it was weird. Matthew Boyd, who is not having a good season for the Detroit Tigers, he was no hitting the Nationals until the bottom of the sixth inning. And then, like out of nowhere, the Nationals erupted offensively. It started with a leadoff opposite field double by Cape Air Ruiz. And boy, did he need that. Cape Air has not been hitting particularly well lately. He was actually the number seven batter in Davey Martinez's lineup on Friday night. Ended up, though, going two for three with a two-run homer and a double. Now, the double should perhaps be put into quotation marks because this was a liner on which the Tigers' right fielder, Matt Veerling, whiffed on an attempted backhanded catch. This, to me, is one of these classic things of, I guess, from an official scoring standpoint, you have to call it a hit because the fielder never touched the ball. But stuff like that, to me, needs to stop. There needs to be like a common sense application to plays like this one. That's not a hit. That's a fielding miscue. That's an error on Veerling. And it would have been something if that ended up being the Nats' only hit in the game. And Boyd didn't have a no-hitter because of an official scoring scenario like that. But anyway, K-Bird got the double there. And then K-Bert, a big home run in a three-run seventh, a two-run homer into the Nats bullpen in right field on a 1-2 pitch to cut the Nats deficit to 8-6. The ball on that homer, it looked like it was at K-Bert's eyes. I mean, that was a high ball that he delivered into the Nats bullpen in right field. So very good game offensively for K-Bert Ruiz. Yeah, and he needed it, and he knew that he needed it. But I think it's also interesting, Davey Martinez talked to him previously. He had a rough series in uh, Miami. But Davey talked to him and said, listen, you're hitting the ball hard for the most part. It's a little bit of bad luck. Don't think you have to go start changing a lot of things because of it. Stick with the approach, swing at good pitches, make solid contact, and those are going to fall in. And that indeed is what happened in this one. And the double in quotation marks, he probably didn't deserve the double, but I'll tell you what, it was well struck. It was a sharp line drive to right field. I think that Veerling maybe lost it in the lights. The Tigers had some trouble, whether it was the dusk or the lights, they had some trouble in this game. And yeah, 
as far as official scoring goes, I think they're sort of required in that case to give them the hit. I've said before on the podcast, this is where I would fully endorse the team error concept where you're not punishing the fielder, but you're not punishing the pitcher either, you know, for a play that clearly should have been made. But I'll tell you also that when CJ Abrams, two batters later, rips a double down the right field line to score him, everybody in the press box is breathing a sigh of relief because you do not want to be in a situation where a controversial call prevents a no-hitter or even a case, because this does happen from time to time, you can challenge an official scorer's call and it could be days later that it gets changed. You don't ever want to be in a position where that would affect whether somebody threw a no-hitter or not. So thankfully, that didn't come into play because the Nats broke out between the Abrams double, the Thomas homer, and then the rally in the seventh. But yes, good game for Kbert. He needed it and good for him for sticking with what he was doing and just getting better results finally. Yeah, I mean, Matthew Boyd, for all of the talk of, hey, this guy's throwing a no-hitter through five innings, three runs in five and two-thirds innings. That ended up being his final line. I mean, no, nothing special off what was looking like uh, it might be a very special outing. Yeah, just to piggyback on the point about Kbert Ruiz hitting balls hard, he entered this game on Friday with a true weighted on-base average of 278, but an expected weighted on-base average of 349. The expected has to do with your quality of contact. You read on-base average like you do a batting average. So 278 in reality, 349 expectation that speaks to he was hitting balls hard, has been hitting balls hard, uh, just not hitting them where they ain't. So good to see Caper Ruiz have a good game offensively and good to see Lane Thomas continue to mash in this month of May. Another home run for Lane Thomas. He was back in the number one spot in the lineup on Friday night. He went one for three with a two-run homer and a walk. Bottom of the fourth, a leadoff walk and Lane in that three-run sixth, a one-out two-run homer to left center to cut the Nats deficit to 8-3, 415 feet per stat cast. Lane Thomas in this month of May, six home runs, a slugging percentage of 620, an on-base percentage of 355, a batting average of 310. He is having an excellent month. He is, and this is kind of reminiscent of when he was really going well last year. At times, now he's got to find a way to bottle this and stick with it and show some consistency. That's been his biggest issue. It seems like he has his most success when he is aggressive against fastballs, particularly early in the count. You don't normally think of a leadoff hitter as wanting to be that aggressive and not work the count, but he is good at hitting fastballs. And if he gets one on the first or the second pitch of an at-bat, he wants to do damage with it. So they've been telling him, you're a good enough fastball hitter. You can adjust. Look fastball. If you get a breaking ball, adjust to it, but don't go up there looking for a breaking ball and then try to adjust to the fastball because that's when you're late on it. So he's been very good at that this month. Now you just hope to see it continue. But I mean, six homers in 19 days in the month, that's as good as anybody out there is going to produce. And boy, does this team need that kind of power surge. So you just hope he can continue that and that this just isn't a, you know a nice three-week stretch instead of maybe the start of a really nice prolonged stretch by him. The other run scoring hit by the Nats on Friday night came from another guy who uh, needed to have a good evening. We talked about k Ruiz needing that. Well, C.J. Abrams off a really rough series in the Nats' previous series. He on Friday night, one for four with an RBI double, three runs six, a one-out first pitch RBI double to the right field corner. 
to cut the Nats deficit to 8-1. You know, this was like the anti-2023 Nationals game offensively on Friday night. The Nats only had seven hits. Six of the seven hits were extra base hits. Who were these guys who were out there on Friday night? Two home runs and five doubles. Alex Call had a double. Speaking of guys who have been struggling and uh, who needed uh, to do something well on Friday night. But boy, we have not seen many, if any, games uh, like this one offensively from the Nats this season. And isn't it funny? You score six runs on those seven hits. How do you do that? By hitting for extra bases. This isn't one of those, you know, 12 hits and 11 of them are singles and they only score two or three runs. It's a lot easier to score runs in bunches when you're hitting for extra bases. So that was big. Both those homers were big. I mean, they didn't come that far away from pulling the whole thing off. Abrams hit a drive to the warning track representing the tying run in the seventh. Didn't quite get it there. Thomas came up after that, hit a sharp grounder, but the infield was in. I mean, they really were one more hit away from pulling off what would have been one of the best comebacks in uh, club history. The, I looked it up. The best was actually from down 9 nothing to the Marlins in 2018. This would have been 8 nothing. But credit to them because they put together finally good at bats and they drove the ball in the air, which is how you score runs in bunches and don't require three or four hits to score one run. Hitting for power in baseball, it's like explosive plays in football. It's like three-pointers in the NBA. It just allows you for such a wider margin of error. And, you know, you don't have to scratch and claw and fight for every little run or point that you score. So, yeah, it was really cool seeing that. I was I was actually very happy to see that on Friday night just because of, like you said, we've seen so many other games in which it is like 12 hits, 11 singles, three runs. Like, okay. And I got to tell you this, bottom of the eighth, so the Nats are down 8-6, get a two-out walk from Dom Smith. Davey pinch hits Corey Dickerson for Stone Garrett. I said to myself, Dickerson's going to homer. I really felt like Dickerson was going to come through. Ended up striking out swinging. But, you know, you kind of felt like, you know, there was some magic in the air. Dickerson's done well since coming off the IL. But no, a Dickerson homer was not to be. I'd liked the decision to pinch hit there, playing the matchup lefty-righty. Now, A.J. Hinch also made a pitching change. And what's interesting, he didn't bring in a lefty. He brought in his closer, the right-hander, Lang, who actually has been better against lefties. He's not given up an extra base hit to a lefty all season. I was optimistic, but then you know what happened that ruined the mood entirely? Before he ever threw a pitch, Corey Dickerson was called for a clock violation. He's down on the count 0-1, and, and then he wound up striking out a couple pitches later on a fastball that was down the middle. So that was a bad at bat in a big moment. And you don't do yourself any favors when before anybody's thrown a pitch, you're already putting yourself in an 0-1 hole. Yeah, you got to be ready to go. And he, for whatever reason, was not. Nat scored six runs despite the recent white hot bat, Jamer Candelario going 0 for 4 with a strikeout. Uh, Luis Garcia went 0 for 4 with a strikeout. But Joey Manessis was back and he was right back to being the Nat starting DH and number three batter. One for four with a ground rule double. Did strike out twice, but Manessis in the bottom of the six, a two out full count ground rule double off the left field warning track despite having been down to the count of 1.12. So, you know, we thought, hey, maybe a couple days off uh, might cool Joey Manessis a bit, but uh, looks like he got right back to where he had been, at least uh, with that double. Yeah. And the good thing from a, you know, staying hot standpoint was he really only missed one day, the day that his son was born. He actually came back to the ballpark when the team was out of town on Thursday and got some work in. So good for him, good for his wife for letting him do that. And you're allowed to take up to three days on paternity leave. So I actually didn't expect him back until Saturday, but everybody is doing well. They're healthy. He wanted to come back, maybe didn't want to lose 
the good swing that he had going on. And so he came back for this game and hit that ball very well down the left field line. And I do want to salute the Nationals bullpen because this was a B bullpen game on Friday night, basically because, you know, you're down eight, nothing. You figure, all right, you know, just sort of take your lumps and move on to game two of the series. Well, Hobie Harris, Thaddeus Ward, and Andres Machado, they ended up combining to allow two runs in six and a third innings. I mean, the bullpen kept the Nats in this game. Harris, one run, two and a third innings. Ward, one run in two innings. But Machado, two perfect innings. And if the Nats do come back to win this game, the bullpen, I think, gets a lot of credit because, you know, you're covering up a lot of innings. The Nats lately have not had to do that from a bullpen standpoint, had to do it in this game because of what happened with Jake Irvin. But Harris, Ward, and especially Machado, some good stuff on Friday night. Yeah. And if nothing else, what this does is it allows you to go into Saturday's game with all of your top guys available. So depending on the situation there, you're not worried about, well, this guy's not available, this guy's not available. To get through that game with only three relievers, that's good stuff. You need that. Harrison Ward each gave up a solo homer. So, okay, it's going to happen, but they didn't give up anything else. And I agree that the two innings, perfect innings from Machado was really helpful at various points because the team was rallying. You did have Finnegan warming at one point and you did have Harvey warming at one point just in case. And I thought it was interesting. We didn't get to see exactly how this would play out, but Finnegan was warming in theory for the eighth and Harvey was warming in theory for the ninth. We may have a change in roles on our hands. We got to see how this plays out. He's done a few different things, but we may actually have seen very subtly Davey Martinez change his closers and go now with Finnegan in the setup role and Harvey in the closers role. And what's funny about that, if we have seen the change, the change is still in place despite what happened in game one of the change with Hunter Harvey blowing that save chance. Not often you see something like that, but um, if a change has happened, when did the change happen? Because it may well have not happened on the day of that game. It may have happened like a few days earlier. It had been a while since the Nats had been in a position to where you had to make a decision on Finnegan and Harvey. Right. And, you know, he had, remember, Finnegan was struggling out West. Harvey came in and got the save against Arizona first of his career. But then Finnegan did get another chance, I think, at some point after that. But you're right. Even though they were winning games, they were winning by enough runs that it wasn't really an issue. Now, there may not be anything defined here. It may still be a, hey, we like the matchup, Finnegan versus these guys in the eighth, Harvey versus these guys in the ninth. I think we're going to have to see several save situations before you really know what's going on here. And I don't think Davey's going to proclaim anything one way or the other. But I did think that was interesting. It seemed had they finished the rally, that they were setting it up for Finnegan to set up and Harvey to close. While we are talking Nats relievers, uh, I know there were some injury updates that were provided on Friday. Sean Doolittle, where are we with him? So Sean Doolittle, just to catch everyone up in case uh, you've sort of lost track here, Sean Doolittle ended up missing most of last season due to a left elbow injury that uh, led to him undergoing an internal brace procedure as opposed to Tommy John to repair a tear and his left UCL. As you may recall, Doolittle was actually quite good for the Nats over six games last year. Five and a third scoreless and walkless innings with six strikeouts. He actually retired 16 of the 17 batters he had faced, but he had not been good in recent seasons. He's obviously older now this season, would be his age 36 season. Nats could use an effective lefty in the bullpen. Where are we with Doolittle? This sure feels like it's taking longer than any of us were led to believe that it would take. He is throwing in extended spring training in Florida. He's been throwing pretty much every other day. And according to Davey Martinez, no pain. Everything's going fine there. What he has not done yet, though, is pitch on back-to-back days. And it appears that that is the big hurdle he needs to overcome before they would then send him 
on a rehab assignment and get him ready to come back up here to the big leagues. He may be getting close to that point, but he's not there yet. They're certainly being careful with him. I can understand the idea that you kind of want to let him have almost like a full spring training and then he comes up and whenever it is that he's good to go, you've got him for the rest of the season. But without seeing him with our own eyes, it's hard to know exactly how he looks, how hard he's throwing, what his command is like. I will say I did not figure it was going to be this long, certainly back in spring training when Sean was very optimistic about the way things were going. So Doolittle is not on the Nats 40-man roster. And if you look at the Nats' various injured lists, the 10-day, the 15-day, the 60-day, he's not officially on any of those lists. This is kind of a wonk question, but where exactly is he from a roster standpoint? Like, where is he parked in the Nats organization? The minor league IL, I think, essentially. And I don't know if it's officially AAA or, or what that is, if they assigned him to one of those rosters. Yeah, because he signed a minor league deal in spring training and wasn't guaranteed of anything, he doesn't count to the 40-man roster, so he doesn't have to be placed on the 15-day or the 60-day IL. Now, that also means he's not getting big league money. If we really want to get wonky here on all this, he's still on a minor league contract until he gets up to the big leagues. But he understood the situation. I think he was fine with this all along. But yeah, it is funny. You kind of tend to forget about him because anytime you run through who's on the IL for the team, even though somebody like Steven Strasburg, who's out of sight, out of mind, is still on the 60-day IL, Sean Doolittle does not appear anywhere on those lists. Yeah, I mean, it's funny when you look at the Nats 60 day IL, it includes Steven Strasburg, Cade Cavalli, Tanner Rainey. I mean, that's not a name we're hearing a lot about. Victor Arano, that's not a name that we're hearing much about. So, yeah, you do kind of forget about people when they're on this, especially the 60 day IL. What about Victor Robles? So, he was put on the 10 day injured list on May 8th, retroactive to May 7th with back spasms. You know, we're obviously past 10 days since May 7th. You know, the back spasms at the time didn't appear to be a big deal, but he's obviously missing some time here. Yeah, this one is going a little slower than maybe, again, everyone would have thought. He's taken some swings, but he is still dealing with some issues there. As far as I know, he has not attempted to run at all yet. So it sounds like he's going to be out a little while longer. And the longer that goes, you do run the risk of, okay, he's been out for a while now. We got to go send him to Rochester or Fredericksburg, get him some at bat. So it could be a little while. You know, I think Alex Call has done a nice job defensively. I don't think they've lost very much there in center field, but I do think they're missing something without Robles. From a defensive standpoint, even offensively, for all his faults, he did do some good things for them. And if nothing else, his absence is forcing Call to be an everyday player and Stone Garrett to be playing a lot too, and that thins their bench. I think Alex Call's getting exposed playing Every day, he's probably not an everyday big league center fielder. He's done a nice job, I think, under the circumstances. But I do think this team would be better served having Victor Robles on the active roster and then call and or Garrett on the bench. Yeah, Robles offensively actually had been productive so far this year. It didn't always look great, wasn't always pretty, but the results actually had been there. He had drawn some walks, gotten some hits. It had been uh, a relative bright spot for the Nats. Well, we are bringing back something we did two years ago on the podcast, and it requires work from you, but hopefully it's fun work. We'd like for you to submit your voice memos to us regarding your memories of the Nationals' run to the 2019 World Series Championship. And we kind of leave this open and vague, and you can kind of take it in whatever direction that you want. But 
your favorite moment, your favorite game, an experience you had watching a game. Maybe you were at a game or games. You know, again, you kind of take this wherever you want, but you can record the voice memo into your smartphone and then just email that file to us. Uh, the email address is natschatpodcast at gmail.com. So, you know, just give us like 30, 60, 90 seconds, whatever you want. If you have a good story to tell, give it to us and uh, we'll put the best voice memos at the ends of uh, various installments of this podcast. So we appreciate you doing that. We had a lot of fun doing that a couple years ago and uh, got a lot of great submissions. And I'm sure that there are many more. One of the great things about a deep postseason run, a championship run, is it happens over so many weeks to where you have a lot of stories and tales to tell. And so that's the kind of thing that I think can go on for years. You know, people engaging in storytelling regarding that month of October 2019 and where you were and what you did and who you were with. That's a big part of the fun of your baseball team winning a championship. Yeah, I agree. And I I still, you know, we're coming up on what, three and a half years since it it happened. And I sort of remind myself every once and again, oh yeah, remember that particular game and remembering a certain scene about it or where I was or what the clubhouse was like afterwards. We all remember the major moments, but there were other, there were a lot of moments that month that really stood out that were special and helped make the entire run such a great thing between some of the LCS games. And we talked about it the other day with Annabelle Sanchez, the no hit bid he had going on in game one of that series. There really were a lot of special moments that whole month. And the farther away we get from it, I think the more important is to try to remember those because we don't want to forget what that was like and believe that someday again, we can experience something like that here. Yeah. So again, that email address, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. We have a new website, natschatpodcast.com. Check that out. You can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt at that site. Again, natschatpodcast.com. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. Thank you to Tim Newmark for the Nats Chat Podcast music. Visit timnewmark.com for Mark Zuckerman. I'm Al Galdi. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. The right-hander kicks, delivers, Zim swings and drives one to deep center field. Way back goes Bellinger to the warning track, to the wall. It is This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.